and welcome to a bonus podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. In this mini podcast mini series, we will be looking at pilgrimage. Part one will focus on the history and religious aspects of pilgrimage. And then in part two, we'll be looking at pilgrimage and tourism and how the sites are managed. A quick reminder before we get started, that if you would like to know any of the sources I have used or just want some recommendations on reading for this topic, let us know via our email or on social media or in the comments to this, and I'll be happy to share that. It's not like I robbed this. It's not like I robbed this from my MA dissertation. No, got to reuse these things. Reuse, recycle. Okay, so before we get started, what is pilgrimage? A pilgrimage is a spiritual journey to a holy place or shrine with the intention of communing with the deity that resides there. The visiting of these sites can be traced back to the start of recorded history. Pagans would travel to sites for different festivals. The Romans traveled to places such as the baths in Bath. Christians traveled to sites all around the world. And they're not alone. A form of pilgrimage can be found in the teachings of every major religion. Okay, so what makes the sites that they went to significant? Like, was it always churches? Sacred sites account for some of the world's most recognisable landmarks, from the stone cathedrals of Europe to the jungle temples in Cambodia. But these places can also be caves, bridges, standing stones, and even wells. What makes them special depends. Some are places where miracles are said to have happened. Others are places where saints have preached, lived, or died or sometimes these places house a relic or they've been a site of visitation by the Virgin Mary or another saint. Okay, so why do people go on pilgrimages? Many undertook the often risky journey, believing it would bring them closer to the divine so they could receive guidance or help them in their pursuit of healing or forgiveness. It didn't come without risk. In the medieval period, the journey was often difficult and dangerous. For safety, poorer pilgrims were traveling groups, whilst those, that, whilst those that could afford to would pay for protection. Whilst pilgrimage was a religious undertaking, by the end of the Middle Ages, it had begun to become commercialized. In what way? So pilgrimage sites would compete over which location had the most miracles or relics in order to attract more pilgrims. In fact, there is some speculation that Glastonbury Abbey's discovery of King Arthur and Guinevere's graves was more about attracting visitors than authenticity because more visitors equaled more money. It wasn't just the sites themselves that wanted in on the money. Major pilgrimage routes were littered with industries which made their money for pilgrims, including hospitality, catering, souvenir and souvenir selling which allowed medieval pilgrims to return with tangible objects such as badges, relics, and amulets, which, quote, served as objects of memory for what was for many a once-in-a-lifetime trip. And we'll talk more about those in a bit. This has led some, such as Justin Digents, to suggest that medieval pilgrimage can be seen as, quote, the first example of mass tourism as we know it today. Okay, so you said pilgrimage had an industry to it. So what kind of things would that include? I've been really excited about the fact I'm about to share, and I've been saving it to share with you for weeks. As Pilgrimage grew in popularity, locals realised they could make money by offering services to those travelling the routes. This included things such as accommodation, food, protection, and even souvenirs. The most common items purchased were Pilgrimage badges, and these would be specific to each of the sites. 
There were other items that could be purchased, such as holy water, rosaries, rings, and at places like Walsingham, which I'm going to talk about more in a minute, pilgrims could even purchase vials of the Virgin Mary's breast milk. And there is even a link between pilgrimage and prostitution. Okay, we'll circle back round to the pilgrimage and prostitution in a second. But first of all, we need to talk about um, the Virgin Mary's breast milk. Now there's a sentence I thought you'd never have to say. <laughs> yeah, same. Images of the Virgin Mary with her breasts exposed is quite common in medieval art because, quote, breastfeeding was a common fact of life and traditionally associated with a person being fed both physically and spiritually. As such, this wasn't seen as scandalous in any way. In Bethlehem, there's a church known as the Church of the Milk Grotto, which is built on white rock. And according to legend, the rock turned white after the Virgin Mary stopped to breastfeed the baby Jesus there and spilled a little milk on the surface. There is also the miracle of lactation, in which St. Bernard claimed he stood before a statue of the Virgin Mary and exclaimed, quote, show me you are a mother, at which point the statue came to life and with baby Jesus in one arm, the other hand, she squeezed her bared breasts, squirting breast milk onto the lips of St. Bernard, who, quote, being nourished spiritually, received the gifts of healing and wisdom. These vials of breast milk became known as the cure to just about every ailment one can imagine. It could be purchased not only at pilgrimage sites, but in chapels and monasteries all over the Christian world. It got to the point where John Calvin wrote that, quote, even if she, meaning Mary, had been a cow her whole life, she could not have produced such a quantity. OK, I mean, yeah. Yeah, just, I mean, St. Bernard sounds like he was on the communion wine <laughs> let's be honest on the milk and cookies uh-huh possibly not the virgin mary's breast milk and cookies might be a bit sour especially if it came out of a statue yeah not sure that yeah no anyway also that's some good aim <laughs> I mean, i've never i've never breastfeed breastfeeded i've never breastfed a baby but I can't get milk in my cup when I'm making a cup of tea first thing in the morning, let alone squirting it from the sauce. The 6.1s are the worst. Like, there's no aiming. I feel like we have strayed very far. Yeah. Let's, let's just circle back round. So you said there was a link between pilgrimage and prostitution. I did. Not all pilgrims spend their evenings at prayer. Some prefer to engage in, shall we say, more carnal activities. In the borough of Southwark, Prostitutes known as Winchester geese could be heard, quote, advertising for customers, and this screeching is what earned them the name geese. The Winchester part of their name came about because the brothels and their workers fell under the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Winchester. I mean, I can't imagine that he would have liked that very much. Oh, actually he did, because the good bishop taxed them with gusto. Sadly, uh, as you might imagine, as these women plied their trade, they contracted and spread venereal disease, in particular syphilis, which was fatal. Those unlucky enough to contract syphilis were referred to as having been, quote, bitten by a Winchester goose or getting goosebumps. For the women or geese that died from syphilis, there was still one last indignity, and that was being buried on unconsecrated ground. 
and you can visit their graves at the Crossbones Graveyard, um, which has a memorial to commemorate them. So people that live in like tourist areas now get annoyed with tourists. So did the locals at these pilgrimage sites like the influx of pilgrims or do we know? I mean, I'm sure some found it annoying, but with the pilgrims came an influx of jobs and opportunities to make money. And this is something I'm going to talk a little, a lot more about next time as well. So do places still see this happen now? Yes, so a recent example of local industry being successfully built around religious tourism can be seen in the case of Knock Shrine in Ireland. So located in a small village in County Mayo, Ireland, in 1879, 15 locals witnessed a vision of Our Lady accompanied by St Joseph and St John the Evangelist with a lamb standing on an altar before a cross to the left of the figures. The silent vision was said to have lasted two hours. This event saw pilgrims and four popes flock to the site and in 1976, a new church with a 10,000 person capacity was completed. And today the shrine receives on average 1.5 million visitors a year. Such a high volume of visitors, the local authority widened the roads and streets, built new shops. And in 1985, an international airport was even built. The village of Knock houses around 400 people with more than 75 local businesses, which primarily which primarily caters to those visiting the shrine. There are just like a couple that cater exclusively to locals and they're like uh, mechanics and things like that. Thus, through appealing to tourists, the economy has improved, employment opportunities have risen, and it's created quite a good place to live and in, by extension for people to visit. Tourism is always a difficult one, isn't it? Because when an area becomes touristy, it kind of relies on that. Again, that's something we're going to talk about um, next time. And that's why so many places have struggled with the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But also that more and more countries and locations have realised that these religious sites draw tourists. It's not just, mm -hmm. not just pilgrims, but cultural tourists who don't want sun and sea holidays, but want to immerse themselves in a local culture so they they want to go and see where people worship or you know in Italy churches have fabulous pieces of art so people want to go see that or you know it's quite popular now like graveyard tourism mm -hmm. so countries actively market these sites yeah. to attract tourists but it does become like quite a tricky balancing act definitely especially when you get things like this when you've got to like widen roads and stuff like that to you know, be able to have tourists come in. Yes, but on the flip side, I mean, Knock is tiny. Mm. Think how many jobs it's created. 100%. You know, shop staff, waitresses, cooks, hotel staff. Yeah. It's very much getting the balance right. Can make a lot of people happy. Yeah. But of course, the, the downside to that is these are religious sites at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be at prayer and you've got a, a bunch of tourists taking selfies. Yeah. So mismanagement can cause big problems as well. Yeah, definitely. But it is interesting just 
the fact the idea that pilgrimage started out as something that was done specifically for a religious reason that then became like a tourist attraction and like literally it, having souvenirs and things like that it's just interesting there's like when you think about it though we, we go from people traveling solely for religious reasons mm. or war um and then we have the grand tour which is people traveling for education and um thomas cook one of the first package holiday companies actually started catering started off by catering to pilgrimages to yeah. pilgrims and evolved from there so really when you look at modern tourism there are a lot of links to early pilgrimage like today one of the last places we still visit when we visit a site a, a museum a castle is the gift shop yeah and we bring home tangible objects that we keep to remember the place or to give us gifts yeah it's very much a consistent definitely i doubt that medieval um, pilgrims were bringing home bookmarks with their names on them no they had wells of breast milk yeah don't you feel cheated i really do to be honest i mean i would now like a t-shirt that said went to one of the places that supposedly had her breast milk and all I got was this t-shirt. I, I feel like I could supply that. The amount of, you know, these sites I go to, I was going to get you a t-shirt. It's going to be like, my friend visited Walsingham Shrine and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Yeah. And if they don't make them, they should. Yes. I mean, we've talked a lot about, I guess, Christian pilgrimage sites. So you mentioned Romans earlier. So what kind of sites were they going to? So there are several sites like around the Roman Empire. I'm going to talk about the well, what are now known as the Roman baths in Bath. And it's important to know that sacred sites rarely belong to one group of people. There was, in most cases, something there before. And this is the case of what we know as the Roman baths today. First, for those not familiar, the Roman baths located in Bath. That always sounds like the wrong thing to say, but it is in fact correct. Are Britain's only thermal springs and is considered to be, quote, the most dramatic public building of Roman Britain. It's a spectacular place to visit. I went recently and loved it. Other than the big Skellington. Not a big fan of those. Anyway, when the Romans arrived in AD 43, the site was already special to the Druids. So the Romans were respectful respectful towards Sulis, the goddess who was already in situ. It was only the, quote, influential druids with their human sacrifices and more worrying, their ability to stir up trouble for the Romans who had to be annihilated. Thus, Sulis and her sacred spring remained as the landscape around it changed. The building of the baths and the temple was one of the many construction projects in southern England by which the Romans showed their commitment to rebuilding after the Boudican Revolt in AD 60-61. I'm not going to go into detail on the building techniques as that is a podcast or three on its own, but build they did. The temple was constructed on the site between AD 60 and 70 and dedicated to Sulis Minerva. It remained in use until the end of Roman rule in Britain in the 5th century AD. 
People would travel to the temple, therefore undertaking a pilgrimage, to ask the goddess for advice, for healing, or to curse someone who'd done them ill. Okay, so how did pilgrims to the site commune with the goddess? This was done by inscribing your message, be that wishes for healing, a request for guidance, or a curse, onto a sheet of lead pewter, then throwing it into the spring. It was important to get the wording just right, so visitors would often use a scribe for this. It wasn't just tablets that were put into the water. Excavations have recovered jewellery, coins and cups that archaeologists believe were given to the goddess's gifts. The cups may also have been used to drink the water or to pour the water over smaller altars. The temple was also a place of ceremony and sacrifice. In a public ceremony, an animal would be sacrificed and an agar or a herospex would examine the organs for marks and blemishes from which they could foretell the future. Like later pilgrimage sites, there would have been an industry around the baths, temples, scribes, slaves, hospitality, and even trinket sellers. I always find it interesting that the Romans kind of gathered more gods as they kind of went. Like they, yeah. just, they, they always found a way to be like, oh, well, your god of that is actually quite like our god of that. So maybe it's the same one, but we just call it different names. Yeah, like um, Athena to Minerva. Yeah. They, they just basically incorporated students into the Minerva yeah. mythology. It's also interesting because um, we know that the Greeks would put scribe tablets in water because they thought it was a link to the underworld and that's how they could use like magic to curse people. Yeah. I mean, the Celts did too. Yeah. Um, I read a book recently and um, on the fens they kept finding weapons that they believed were like given to the water spirits mm-hmm. as thanks uh, by words. But this, this reusing of sacred spaces from one religion to the next isn't like just the Romans that did it. Even, uh, even parts of the Vatican are built over pagan temples. Yeah. That, it- you know it's a good way to like incorporate old religions within whatever one is up and coming it's yeah and people already know this site is special yeah so they're going to go there to worship and they just kind of get incorporated incorporated into the newer religion like that's why there are so many like yew trees in churchyards that are older than the church yeah because they were important to the pagans it's a very clever pr really is. (laughs) So, of course, in the Western world, we're most familiar with Christian pilgrimages, more specifically Catholic pilgrimage. And I'm going to start with Walsingham, which was voted the best in a poll by Radio 4 and attracts upwards of 150,000 pilgrims during pilgrimage season. Okay, tell us about Walsingham then. The Shrine of Our Lady at Walsingham was established around 1061, by the English nobleman Richeldish de Favatis, who was a, quote, holy woman with a great love of the mother of God. Whilst at prayer, she asked Mary for a way to honour her. In response, the Virgin Mary led her in spirit to Nazareth, showed her the house of Annunciation, where the angel greeted Mary and asked her to build a replica in Walsingham as a perpetual memorial of the Annunciation. In 1150, the Pope gave permission for the Augustine canons to build a priory. Owing to the Crusades, 
traveling abroad to the Holy Land became very difficult. As such, Walsingham became a place of pilgrimage, ranking alongside Jerusalem Rose and Santiago de Compostela. The Reformation caused the priory to be handed over to King Henry VIII's commissioners in 1538. The famous statue of Our Lady of Walsingham was taken to London and burnt and the shrine destroyed. After the destruction of the shrine, Walsingham ceased to be a place of pilgrimage. It was destroyed so thoroughly that there's nothing left of it today. In 1921, the Anglican Father Alfred Hope Patton, SSC, had the idea to create a new statue of Our Lady of Washington, based on the image depicted on the seal of the medieval priory. In 1922, the statue was set up in the parish church of St. Mary and, quote, from the first night that the statue was placed there, people gathered around it to pray, asking Mary to join her prayers with theirs. Soon became a regular destination for pilgrimage. With the increase of pilgrims, a pilgrim hospice was opened. Um, a hospice? So in this context, uh, a hospice is the name given to a place of hospitality for pilgrims. In 1931, a new holy house was built. And in 1938, the church was extended to form the Anglican Shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham. The church was blessed on Whit Monday, and from then on, a pilgrimage has taken place every year, with the exception of war years. During the Second World War, Walsingham was made a restricted zone, meaning it was closed to visitors. But in May 1945, American forces organised a mass in the grounds, and this was the first time since the Reformation the grounds had held a mass. In the 1960s, the shrine was extended and contains a holy well, which is, quote, known for its healing properties. Water from the well is often purchased by visitors and pilgrims and taken home as keepsakes or gifts. In 1886, Charlotte Pearson Boyd purchased the 14th century Slipper Chapel, the last of the wayside chapels en route to Walsingham, and restored it for Catholic use. As pilgrimage numbers to the Slipper Chapel increased, it was declared to be a national shrine of Our Lady for Roman Catholics in England, making Walsingham a site of pilgrimage for both Anglicans and Catholics. It's interesting that after it was kind of closed down, it kind of was, had new life breathed into it later on. Yeah, and it's, it's important to Catholics and Anglicans. It's, I've been to Walsingham, which should come as a surprise to nobody. And it's, it is beautiful. There's a definite feel to it. Now, I'm not religious. Yeah. But there's, there's a peacefulness to it. Um, I, think, I think it's nice that it, it, it got a new lease of life. Yeah. So what are we looking at next? Well, have you ever wondered where the legend of the Loch Ness Monster came from? Every week. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you. St. Columba was supposedly born on the 7th of December, 521, in Gartan, which is in modern-day County Donegal. When he was, quote, sufficiently advanced in letters, he entered the monastic school of Mavilla under Finian of Mavilla. At the age of 20, he had completed his training and travelled into Linster, where he studied under an aged bard named Timon before entering the monastery of Clonard. It was while studying at Moville that Columba became embroiled in a controversy that impacted his personal life as well as the life of the Christian church in both Ireland and Scotland. Columba had copied a manuscript known as the Kitab 
of St. Columba, which he intended to keep for himself. But ownership of the manuscript was challenged by the abbot, St. Finan. Diomat, the chief of the southern Enil, ruled in favour of Finian. This led to the southern and northern Enil clans fighting a battle at Codonay in 1561, with Columba's clan, the northern Enil, becoming victorious. For his part in this, the church cited Columba and made moves to excommunicate him. This, however, never happened thanks to the intervention of St. Brendan of Burr at the Synod of Telton. Instead, Columba was, quote, assigned a penance for his actions of going into exile and the saving of 3,000 souls for the gospel. This number of 3,000 is said to have been the same number as were killed on the battlefield. As such, at the age of 42, Columba set sail with 12 disciples from Derry and headed towards Delrida in Scotland. He was granted the island of Iona by his cousin, King Connell, and this is where he settled and founded his monastic community. Columba returned just once to Ireland in 575 to intervene on behalf of the Bards, who were being threatened with suppression by the kings of Ireland, as well as to negotiate the political relationship between the Inil clan and the Delridian Scots. Columba died in Iona on Sunday the 9th of June, 597, and was buried by his monks in the abbey he had created. Columba's relics were finally removed in 849 and divided between Scotland and Ireland. I mean, that's all very interesting, but I didn't hear anything about the Loch Ness Monster. Fair point. So having arrived in Scotland, Columba went to to visit the Pictish king in Inverness. During his journey, he supposedly encountered some Picts bearing the body of one of their kin. The victim had been badly savaged by a creature in the lock. Now the dead man's boat lay on the other side of the water, so Columba ordered one of his followers, generous of him, to swim over and retrieve the boat. During this, the servant was attacked by a creature that reared out of the lock to attack the swimmer. Columba invoked the name of God and, quote, commanded the beast to return whence it came, and it vanished beneath the waters of the lock, leaving the swimming man unharmed. Of course, this true account was written almost a century after the events took place. Like most Christian legends, it's open to misinterpretation and deliberate exaggeration and is only one of many outlandish miracles attributed to St. Columba. I love that um, even the Loch Ness Monster features in pilgrimage. Oh, I mean, pilgrimage covers everything. This is why it's such an interesting topic. Yeah. I mean, why are more people not going on pilgrimage to the Loch Ness Monster? I mean... I mean, it's a pilgrimage I feel like I could get behind. Right, same. Okay, so other than the Loch Ness Monster, are there any other British pilgrimages? There are lots. I'm going to give a quick mention to a few so that this podcast isn't 100 hours long. First up is perhaps the most well-known of British pilgrimages, which was rediscovered by Hilaire Belloc at the turn of the last century, and that is, of course, Canterbury. Pilgrims first started making the journey from around AD 1172 from from Winchester to Canterbury where St Thomas Beckett was buried after his martyrdom two years before. You have St Hill's Way in North Yorkshire because what kind of a saga's podcast would it be if we didn't mention some awesome ladies which is a more modern pilgrimage to be fair. St Hild was the second abbess of Hartlepool Abbey in 647 AD she left to set up her double monastery at Whitby Abbey, and we have a post on her if, if you're in a reading mood. 
Then we have St. Duthka's Way. St. Duthka was, was one of Scotland's patron saints, an 11th century holy man who became a saint for warriors and a favourite of the Scottish kings. After many years of being buried, his body was found to be incorrupt, which is something we've talked about before, basically means it showed no signs of rigor mortis. And according to the church, that is a sure sign of holiness. And there's also the Northern Saints Trail, which is a network of pilgrimage routes celebrating a group of powerful human beings known as the Northern Saints, who lived during Northumbria's golden age in the seventh and eighth centuries. This is a really popular pilgrimage route. Uh, some of the saints included are St. Cuthbert, St. Aidan, St. Hilda, St. Wilfred, St. Oswald, and the Venerable Bede, who is, of course, the patron saint of historians. Do people still go on pilgrimages then? Yeah, I mean, despite pilgrimage now having a secular educational cultural equivalent, which we're going to be looking at next time, it's not replaced the tradition of travelling for religious reasons. There are an estimated 600 million national and international religious and spiritual trips made around the world each year. Religious devotion is the oldest and most enduring reason people have travelled. These journeys allow them to practice their faith, to take part in festivals, to receive guidance or healing or even forgiveness. However, today they are joined by cultural heritage tourists who visit these sites because of their history, artwork, architecture or just general ambience. So this is something we're going to be looking at in the next podcast. Okay, so still to come this month, we have Gemma's After Dark, which looks at women of the Axis. And fair warning, it's not for the faint of heart, which makes a change because that's normally mine. Just a quick aside, that is going to be a few days late. I kind of maybe sort of over-researched and got myself into a bit of a a bit of a pickle because I had almost too much information and it, it just took a while to sort through. But it is coming in the next few days, I promise. You su- super nerded. I did. A quick reminder that we're taking some downtime next month, meaning June. Um, and as such, there'll be a Kenobi tangent, two After Darks for Patron. Um, and don't panic, we'll be back to full content in July, which should feature... Two posts on women from stage and screen, a tangent on nostalgic TV. I mean, you're saying that I'm promising not to sing theme tunes, but I, I will not promise that. If I start singing, people will switch off. Fair. Same I got told to uh, stand at the back and lip sync in my school choir. Yeah, so. Anyway, two after, two after talks on women in medicine. Um, the second part to this podcast mini series and a solving history as a general release but until then take care of yourselves and each other